Today's episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Harry's. If you want a great shave for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com. Get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code FOOL when you check out. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. And he's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. I never get tired of saying this. (laughs) Hi, Allison. Hi, bro. On today's episode of Motley Fool Answers, it's our anti-summer reading list. Morgan Housel joins us to talk about what he doesn't read. I'll also travel around the office to find out what everyone is doing other than curling up with a good book. We'll also answer your question about where to find predictable income in retirement. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Sally. Sally writes, I've done some retirement planning, and the one thing that seems most troubling is the instability of income. My advisor suggested that I could use an annuity to smooth out the bumps. I'd always heard that annuities were akin to four-letter words, though if Robert says he's considering them, I'm feeling they can't be too bad. So, is there another product or planning tool out there to smooth out the volatility that comes with being in the market? Well, Sally, it's a really interesting question. It is very difficult to people for people who were working, getting that steady paycheck, to then go into retirement where basically a good part of your income is reliant on your portfolio which changes value each and every day. So it can be a little disconcerting. Right. Um, and so, as Sally has obviously heard, I actually sang the praises of annuities in a previous episode. Some. Some. And that's why I want to make clear here. There are lots of different types of annuities. And I was talking about the classic annuity where you hand over an insurance to an insurance company a lump sum, like $100,000, and then they give you maybe $6,000 a year for the rest of your life. Uh, the good thing about that is that six thousand dollars is going to come in no matter what happens to the stock market or the bond market. You can't outlive it. So if you live until your nineties, hundreds, you can't outlive the money. So that's great about that. The downside of that is if you hand over that hundred thousand dollars and then you die the next day, they get to keep that hundred thousand um, dollars. But what's good about that is when you add it to your social security, which is also similar, right? You have that reliable income coming in, lasts as long as you do. You have this stable bedrock. Of income, and in the previous episode, I brought up that when you look at do st- surveys of retirees, the retirees are the happiest. The retirees who have the most guaranteed income. So an annuity is worth considering. Um, but the other things that you should do is when you are in retirement, you should create what we call an income cushion. And this is actually a term given by Dave Braze, who back when I joined The Fool back in 1999, was writing the weekly retiree report, which is something we don't write anymore. That sounds boring. Oh, it was good stuff. And one of my first jobs at The Fool was to edit it. Oh. Dave, Dave uh, was a financial planner. He was in the Army for 25 years. And he wrote his article about how he does his income cushion. And basically, he analyzes how much he's going to spend in his retirement over the next five years, backs out what he's going to get from Social Security, backs out what he's going to get from his pension from being in the Army for 25 years. And that amount, he puts in cash or short-term bonds. So his next five years' worth of income, or the money he needs to cover his expenses, is safe. So that's pretty predictable. So if the market goes down, he's got that, what he calls, his income cushion. You replenish it every year, unless the stock market goes down. Then you put it off for a year or two or three, because generally speaking, over most five-year periods, the market has a positive return. So that's another way to do it. Still, 
you have to invest in the stock market because otherwise your retiree portfolio may not keep up with inflation. So I understand being uncomfortable with the volatility, but it's important to remember that the returns from the stock market come from two components, the ups and downs of the prices and the dividends. And the dividend portion is much more reliable. Since 1960, the dividends paid by the companies in the S&P 500 went down in just six years. Uh, one of the worst times was what we went through in the Great Recession. In the Great Recession, the S&P 500 itself dropped more than 50%. The dividends declined 20%. And they recovered in about two years to where they're all now almost paying out twice as much as they were back in 2007. So, as long as you have a portfolio of Social Security, maximize it as much as possible, an income cushion, so the money you need in the next few years out of the stock market, maybe an annuity, and a good diversified portfolio of dividend-paying stocks, that's a nice, solid foundation of predictable income, and I think you'll be okay in retirement with that. All right. There you go, Sally. This week's episode is supported by Harry's.com. Harry's was started by two guys who wanted to create a better shaving experience by delivering an amazing shave at an affordable price directly to your door. And bro, you actually got to try it out. What'd you think? <laughs> so, I've been married for almost 17 years now, and I dated my wife for a few years before that. And this was the first time that she ever said anything about a shave. <laughs> Wait, did you prompt her though? Were you like, so what do you think? No. I mean, she knew I had it. I'm, I'm a once a week shaver. So if you ever see our video, you can tell I'm usually a grizzly kind of guy. And it's usually with a, an electric razor. So she's used to a pretty grizzled face to begin with. But I do shave every once in a while. And she did not know that I had just shaved. So then when she had facial contact with me. <laughs> Why do you make that sound so gross? Because it probably is. I mean, have you had facial contact with me? It's probably not very <laughs> Why pleasant. Why couldn't you just say when she gave you a smooch or something sweet like that? Huh. She was taken quite aback. So she was in a good very, way. In a good way. She or at was, least not because of your she shame. She was very pleased. Oh, yay. Yeah. So, all right. So, if you would like your wife to be taken aback in a good way, your own wife, not mine. Thank you. Yes. Uh, you can go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. You can enter the code FOOL at checkout, and that'll get you $5 off your first purchase. Here at The Motley Fool, we're always telling you what to read. And I swear, bro does not get a kickback from the publisher every time he mentions The Millionaire Next Door. But I think it's a great idea. Hint, hint. We'll gladly take it. Well, today, Morgan Housel, behavioral finance expert at The Fool, is here to talk about what you shouldn't be reading. And it's not like a list of books or blogs that you really hate. Right, Morgan? No, but I have those if you want them. I no, do. I don't, I do I don't, I don't actually. No, this is the kind of content in your anti-reading list that can be found anywhere. Um, so, thanks for joining us. Thanks. And let's get into the list. The first uh, item on your anti-reading list is political opinions disguised as investing analysis. Yeah, things that I will try to stay as far away as I can. And you know, this happens a lot because investing has a lot to do with economics, and economics has a lot to do with politics. So they're all kind of tightly woven to each other. But it gets so dangerous whenever you are mixing the two, whenever you're mixing your investments with politics. Because the center of politics, the goal of politics is winning the next election. Whereas the goal of investing is, you know, owning real companies that are going to produce profits and holding them for a number of years to fund your own retirement. So they're two just totally different things. And there's also few things that get people as emotional and as 
biased and as kind of stubborn as politics, whereas the traits you need to be a successful investor is to be open-minded and level-headed and even-keeled. So it's rare that you will see a successful investor that has based their investing decisions off of politics. And when you hear people say, you know, if X wins the election, here's what you should invest in, I think those kind of things are really dangerous. It implicitly you know, says that politics are what's going to be driving the stock market over the long term. And I really don't think there's much evidence that that's the case. Not to make any political points here, because I'll give both sides of this. When President Bush won the election in 2000, a lot of people said uh, he's going to have a, a big tax cut, so that's going to be good for consumer spending. So buy airline stocks, because people are going to be spending more money, going on more vacations. That's going to help airlines. And over the next five years, almost every major airline went bankrupt. It didn't have anything to do with <laughs> right, Bush. Right. It was just it's this assumption that if A then B, and a lot of them make sense, but it doesn't play out that way. And then in 2008, when President Obama won, it was. He's going to be really bad uh, for big oil, so buy green energy companies, uh, you know, solar and wind. And what happened over the next five years is that a lot of those solar companies virtually went out of business. You know, stocks are down 95%. And again, that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the president. It's just what industries are going to do are, are often so detached from what any single president has influence over, but even politics as a whole, the influence of it, like, things are going to play out a lot differently. Than, uh, than you will see just from politics alone. It's also funny whenever you watch a political ad, um, whatever whatever thing they're fighting over, it's always going to cost jobs and send the economy in a downward spiral. Of course, right? It's always going to end up in people getting evicted from their homes, no matter what the thing is. Like you have to actually really go do your research to be like, what is this commercial telling me? And we live in D.C., so we are constantly constantly pounded with these commercials about like. I don't know, there's a farmer and he's crying because of some <laughs> bill that I need to go vote against. I don't know what's going on. You know, the, the but I don't want to make the farmer cry. The other big one in 2008 was that uh, you know President Obama is going to pass a bunch of financial regulations, so that's going to be terrible for banks, so stay away from bank stocks. And it just happens that bank stocks, pretty much since he was, was, uh, was first sworn into office, have done extraordinarily well. Not necessarily because of anything he did, just because the banking sector happened to be bottoming him out. <laughs> it would have been hard for him to do much period. worse. <laughs> so a, a lot of times, the narrative be, be, behind what you, how you think politics are going to influence sectors in the stock market, is totally different from how it actually plays out in reality. All right, the second item on your anti-reading list is analysis with time horizons that are far different from yours. Yeah, a lot of times, especially in the media, and it's hard for journalists and pundits to, and analysts to get around this. But you don't know who your, your reader or your viewer is. Are they 20 years old or are they 70 years old? Because those people have totally different objectives. But as a pundit or an analyst, you're kind of speaking in one time frame. So I always try to make a big effort when you're reading something to say, like, this analysis that you're giving me, this forecast that you're giving me, what time horizon are, are you looking after? So one of the things I mentioned in, in, in the article was that I pay no attention to technical analysis. Uh, a, because I, I don't think it works. But B is because technical analysis, which is where you're looking at stock charts to try to foresee where the stock market might go next. Just based purely on its Based movement. purely on the movement in the chart. A, I don't think it works. But B, it's based on the idea of what is the market going to do over the next 30 or 90 days. And even if it worked, I wouldn't have any interest in that because I'm, I'm investing for the next several decades. So even if it did work, I don't think it would be something that I'd pay much attention to because it's based around a time horizon that is totally different than mine. 
Yeah, I remember when I first started working at the Motley Fool, I didn't necessarily have a lot of experience in investing, but I, of course, started watching CNBC more. And at some point, I suddenly realized, oh, wait, at the Motley Fool, we, we talk about investing in a stock for 10, 10 years. And I'm like, oh, wait, they're talking about only investing in this stock for like, a week or two, like like you said, thirty to ninety days, and, look, and it's like something clicked in my head, or I was like, "Oh, we're having totally different conversations here." Yeah, and if if you are a portfolio manager, a hedge fund manager, then what the market does over the next ninety days is really important to you. Like that's that's your world, and that's that is important to you, but it might be not important whatsoever to somebody else. So it's not necessarily that one person is wrong and one person's right. It's right. just you're talking about different things. And a lot of times in financial debates, what we think is a debate between right and wrong is actually def- just a difference in time horizons. Hmm. That's interesting. I saw an Thanks. article today. The headline. <laughs> this is why we have you on. <laughs> this is finally <laughs> I something never interesting. About it that way. Uh, the headline was "Get Ready for Six Months of Difficulties for the Market." Yeah. So, first of all, what do you do with that information, right? Are they suggesting that you should sell and then wait six months? Right, But yeah. like anyone who knew what the market was going to do in six months, six month incre- increments could do that accurately, they would be multi-billionaires, just tremendously wealthy. But those people don't exist. Instead, it's either folks like Bill Gates who started companies or people like Warren Buffett who've been long-term investors. It's just impossible because the prices of the market are decided by all the investors, millions of people from around the world making buying and selling decisions. And you just don't know what they're going to do. But there are all, are all these really rich billionaire hedge fund people on Wall Street. But they're rich because they charge 2% a year and get 20% of the profits on those investments. That's how they're making the money. You do have the people like who've made fabulous wealth during the, the crash of the mortgage market, like Paulson, for example. Um, but then they, you know, you look at his record since then, and he's done fine, but he's also said you should be owning gold, and that's been a horrible <laughs> decision. So, um, it, that you do have these instances of where people made a killing at one time. Do they make killing after killing every six months? just doesn't exist. All right, and the final item on your anti-reading list is content of excessive length and unnecessary detail. That just sounds like well-researched material to me. What are you talking about? No, I think, well, there's, it's easy for a writer to think that if they put a lot of time into a subject, it took them a long time to analyze, they put in a lot of effort into it, that it should be a really long piece of writing. But there's, you know, from a reader's perspective, there's no points awarded for difficulty. <laughs> and the majority of books, I think, but this is true for articles too, could be significantly shorter than they are. And it's funny, now that we do a lot of reading on Kindle, where we have data behind it, there's a lot of data that Amazon tracks in terms of how far does the average reader make it in a book before they quit. Oh, yeah? And it's extremely low. So, one of the most popular books last year was called Capital. It's about uh, wealth inequality. And the average reader who bought the book made it, I think, 17% of the way through before they gave up. And I suspect that right. is probably pretty common for most books, that most readers don't make it past chapter three or four. But and the point I made in the article is, I don't think you need to. It can be a really good book where the author makes a great point, and you read the first three chapters and you say, Got it. Okay, I got it. I got it. And a lot of sort of the economics of the book industry demand that you write 250 pages. But a lot of times, you, 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 know, you can make a great point, well-researched and powerful, and a life-changing point in 10 pages, if that. So, uh, I always try to keep that in mind, that just because something is long doesn't mean you need to read all the way to the bottom. And Rick, what's your oft-used quote that you like to use? I believe it was Mark Twain. I was going to write you a short note, but I didn't have time, so I wrote you a long one. 
There it is. Yeah, yeah. So who do you think, uh, who do you like to read who you think does a good job of, of hitting that right amount of information without going overboard? Well, I think the best at it, and it's not necessarily, I, I don't read his blog very often because it's a little outside of what I do, but Seth Godin writes a blog where literally his blog posts are two sentences, three sentences. Oh, wow. The reason is a long tweet. But he says he makes a big enough point in those two sentences that you're like, that's great. That, that's perfect. Like in, in three sentences, he can give you more information and a bigger insight that a lot of people can in an entire chapter of a book. So to me, that's the epitome of good writing, is when you can say the most in as few words possible. So he's someone who, who does it really well. I think, in general, Twitter forces you to do that, because you only have a sentence or two before they cut you off. So that really makes you think about, what am I trying to say? How can I say it in as few words as possible? What are the big points, without rambling on, how do I get people's attention in two sentences? So Twitter, in general, just kind of forces people that way. Yeah. That's like with poetry, too. I'm going on a tangent, but like the yeah. idea of like structure and form for poetry forces you to think hard and be like, okay, I'm going to do a Sistina. All right, here we go. Got to have all these words rhyme. think about every single word. Ooh, every single word. Yeah, it makes you become much more deliberate. Um, Trivia oh, thing about me, uh, you may or may not know, is I have a master's in teaching secondary education, secondary English. And we did a lot of study about reading retention. And retention is so pathetically low when people <laughs> read a book and how much of it they remember afterwards. Which is all, which is all that matters is what do you remember. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> exactly the truth, which is why like, if you can get your like the main point across in you know like a short Seth Godin little extra tweet type of thing, you have accomplished quite a bit because adding all that extra words will take up someone's time and it doesn't necessarily mean they're actually going to remember it yeah. after they've read it. Some of the best writing advice, I forget who said it, it's a famous quote, but I forget who it's from. The best writing advice is, uh, leave out the parts that people tend to skip. <laughs> <laughs> when I wrote my very first issue of Rule Retirement, it was like 11.30 at night at Full HQ, and it was me and Tom Gardner were the only people in the office. And I said, I'm just, you know, it's the first issue, I'm a little nervous. He said, I'll read it. He read it, gave me some good, good feedback, and then he told me the story of... I think it's, is it the novel River Runs Through It, where basically the, the dad would say, okay, write me this essay. Kids would write the essay, turn it in, and say, okay, write it again, but just now cut it in half. Yeah. Then do it again, cut it in half. It makes you boil it down to the essentials. Yeah. That's why really retirement is only one paragraph. <laughs> Everyone should subscribe. <laughs> just kidding. It's not really just one paragraph. All right. So, of course, this is The Motley Fool. So, I have to ask you, what's your one book recommendation or something that you're reading right now that's pretty good? So, a, a book that I just finished and I really enjoyed it, it's called How Google Works. And it's written by Eric Schmidt, who's the former CEO of Google. Oh, okay. And it talks about sort of how Google works culturally and as a business and how they've grown from a garage startup to one of the largest companies in the world. And it goes into some detail about you know, their organizational structure, their employee culture, you know, how they work together, how they innovate. You know, how do you be a giant company but still really innovative? Uh, and he, he goes into detail about it. It might sound a little boring, but I think it's it's really fascinating. It's it's written in a way that is very accessible to almost anybody. But I, that I think anyone from uh, an amateur investor to a business executive can learn a lot about. All right, great. great. You know, my one criticism of a of the book was what's that? I think it's easy for someone at Google uh, to underestimate how lucky they are to have a search engine that throws off. Thirty billion a year in profits, or whatever it is, <laughs> <You're just laughs> rolling around. And there, piles there are parts of, money of the book, and, and I'm 
Yeah. I'm grossly generalizing, paraphrasing here, but it's like, you know, the key to innovation is don't think about how much money it's going to make. Just try to think, you know, in the beginning, think about cool products, innovative products. And there are parts of the book where I want to say, yeah, it's easy for you to say that when you're just minting money over in the corner. <laughs> yeah, all the resources right. you could ever dream about to do this, but it's a great book. All right. Wonderful. Well, Morgan, thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll, of course, love to have you back again on the show sometime in the future. Thanks. Keeping up with the trend of not reading stuff, I asked a few fools for their summer non-reading recommendations. They could suggest anything, literally. The only catch was it couldn't be a book. And here's what they had to say. My name is Chris Hill. I host our Market Foolery podcast, and I also host Motley Fool Money, and I recommend the Summer Olympics. I love the Summer Olympics. I try to block out all the stories about corruption and things that may or may not be happening down in Rio and just focus on the fact that these people from all these countries around the world are the very best at what they do. My name is Christine Hargis. I manage our healthcare content on fool.com and my recommendation would be to join an adult sports league. They've got soccer, volleyball, kickball, you name it. You can probably find it, especially if you live in a metropolitan area, but they're everywhere and they're super fun. Hi, my name is Rob Runette, and I'm a project manager at The Motley Fool. And I would recommend this summer that you check out a podcast. It's called How Did This Get Made? And it's all about a group of comedians who are reviewing a film that's not really A-plus material, but basically they have an opportunity to talk about all the most intriguing parts. And I recently was um, on the show in a cameo appearance. I called in and they used one of my phone call questions or asked the host Paul Shear to name his top three TV theme songs of all time. And what did he say? He picked Rockford Files. Okay. He picked Charles in Charge. And he picked the original Monday Night Football theme song. Hi, my name is Dylan Lewis. I'm the host of Industry Focus Tech. Uh, my recommendation for summer activities is the Passport Program. It's basically a booklet of buy one, get one free offers at bars. Uh, I think there's like 12 participating cities. Washington, D.C. is one of them. My current mission is to hit all 50 bars between Memorial Day and Labor Day. My name is Gabby LaPera. I work in editorial at The Motley Fool, and my summer recommendation is to take a class at your local community college. And what are you taking? Oh, I'm going <laughs> to take uh, organic chemistry. Why? Because it's fun. I don't know. I was also thinking about taking biochem, but they told me I need to take orgo first, so organic chemistry it is. Fun! <laughs> All right, bro, what's your non-summer, summer non-reading recommendation? I'm going to go with the classic board games. I'm going to say this because my family and I did this on Father's Day weekend, and we had a blast. One of the issues, I love board games. I love all kinds of games. But one of the issues in my family is that we have a significant age gap from the youngest to the oldest, so it's often hard for us to agree on a game that we all like. So we went with Pictionary, Yeah. and it was a blast. It was a blast. Um, so... I recommend that. The other game that, as a family, we generally love is a game called Dixit, D-I-X-I-T. Requires that a lot one's of, fun. Requires a lot of imagination, but it's a lot of fun. Rick, what's your summer recommendation? Uh, I also enjoy the board games. Uh, I'll give a thumbs up to that. 
Um, and also podcasts. Recently, I mentioned the history of English. I like a lot of history podcasts. There's a history of pirates. There's a history of history of history. pirates. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a really good one. Um, so there's all kinds of history stuff, but also if you're into soccer, there's great soccer podcasts out there. If you're oh, into soccer. words, there's the Allusionist, another great podcast. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so there's there's just tons of them out there. Whatever you're interested in, you can find deep conversations about. Yep. And we also have a special guest in the studio today, Diane. Diane, what is your... First off, Diane, what do you do here at The Fool and what's your recommendation? Well, hello. Um, Hi. uh, (laughs) I'm on uh, the Motley Fool's People team and I'm helping out with some of the podcast things, so it's fun to be here and see all this nonsense go down in person. Um, Mine is actually related to what Rick was just saying about podcasts. If you are a fan um, of food, which I certainly am, or of the American South, I'd like uh, recommend um, a podcast called Gravy from the Southern Foodways Alliance. So it's a pretty interesting look at some surprising things that that go on. They had a really interesting podcast about a community um, in North Carolina of Laotian immigrants that grew up in North Carolina and never knew existed. So pretty interesting um, and just something to broaden your horizons a little bit. Cool. Uh, like someone want to ask? Oh, what? Whatever you're interested in, there's a podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, does someone want to ask me what my summer? I was just going to ask is? you, Allison. What's your summer recommendation? Mine's a little weird, but it's um, it's Vino Verde, which is which is a young wine from Portugal that hasn't matured yet, kind of like Robert Brokamp. <laughs> <laughs> they drink thousands of gallons of it in New Hampshire. <laughs> We're still we're still gonna <laughs> make fun of of that, huh? New Hampshire, forty six hundred gallons. Oh my gosh! All right, uh, it has a lower alcohol content, and so the calories and the drunkiness are diminished, and it's fizzy. But the best news is that it's really cheap. It's like less than ten bucks. So so it is like you, me. If you need a beverage <laughs> this summer, I highly recommend Vino Verde. Um, everyone else recommended like things and I just recommend having a glass of wine but whatever whatever works for you hey thanks your recommendation actually goes well with a lot of the other recommendations it does it's a nice pairing isn't it hmm. all right with Pictionary that could be fun <laughs> all right that's it for the show it is edited summer breezingly by Rick Engdahl <laughs> It works. It's fine. Uh, you can reach us at answers at fool.com. Also, if you have a moment, please head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to our show and give us a rating or review. Um, we love uh, we love getting ratinged and reviewed. If it's nice stuff. <laughs> Only go if you're going to say nice stuff. All right. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish.